everybody, this is Rafe Telsch, and this is episode 5 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie selected specifically by our guest that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. Hope you all are doing well out there. I don't know about where you live, but where I am, fall is definitely settling in. The temperatures are dropping, which makes being outside a lot nicer. But it's also really nice weather to just cuddle up and enjoy some new movies. And thanks to this podcast, I'm certainly getting the opportunity to do that a lot more. In fact, this week's episode is the last one for quite a while that's a movie that I was already familiar with. So I'm getting to experience a lot of brand new movies that I'm really enjoying. There's a lot of fun to be had in doing this podcast. And, you know, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't taking a look at the numbers and they're going up slightly week after week. So I'm slowly accumulating a listener base. And I want to thank you all for listening and thank you all for spreading the word and helping me make this thing happen again. If you haven't noticed, every Friday I post a question on Twitter and Facebook inspired by that week's episode. So last week we talked about the Mission, which was a movie I had not even heard of, despite the fact that it starred Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons. So the question I asked on Twitter and Facebook was, what was the last movie you discovered featuring big-named actors that you couldn't believe you hadn't even heard of? And uh, Chris Talent answered us on Twitter, at Talent underscore Chris, and his answer was, A Scanner Darkly, Keanu Reeves in a animated kind of movie where he plays a cop that goes too deep. Very cool movie. I love A Scanner Darkly. I did see that one in the theaters, and I've seen it several times uh, on DVD or streaming. It's not only got Keanu Reeves in it, but it's also got Robert Downey Jr. before he took on the mantle of Iron Man and Woody Harrelson. And it's a fantastic movie. Don't let the rotoscoped animation set you off. It's definitely worth a look. Uh, Luis Ramirez answered us on Facebook and said, Well, I haven't seen it, and it stars only one big name, but I just learned about a movie called If starring Malcolm McDowell in his feature film debut. It's about an anarchistic student who eventually starts a violent incident at their university. I believe it's supposed to be somewhat bonkers in film direction, but apparently it's what got McDowell his starring part in A Clockwork Orange. And I have to admit, I have not seen If. I had not heard of it either, and I'll definitely be checking it out, because I do love Malcolm McDowell, especially his early stuff. So as I said, I post those questions on Fridays. You can find us on Twitter at Have Not Seen This and on Facebook at Have Not Seen This Podcast. Come be a part of our community. Come join in the conversation uh, and uh, we'll read your question on the air. As well, I should mention, I'm going to be starting to look for more guests soon. I'm, I'm almost out of the initial queue of guests that I had lined up. So if you want to come on and talk about a movie, I really would love to have guests on. I did not intend for this to just be Rafe brings on a bunch of friends to talk about movies. I'd love to talk about movies with new people. If you want to do that, shoot me an email, have not seen this at gmail.com or go over to have not seen this.podbean.com and click on the be a future guest button and uh, line yourself up. I would love to talk more about movies with more people. That's kind of what part of the plan for this podcast was, and I know I'm not going to have a bunch of people writing in until I've built up a listener base, but I also can't build up a listener base without episodes, which means I need more people to talk movies with. So let's talk about this week's movie. I was listening to one of the podcasts I listened to last week, and I was reminded of a quote by John Hodgman, who talked about nostalgia. And in his book, Vacation Land, he wrote, Normally I consider nostalgia to be a toxic impulse. It is the twinned, yearning delusion that A, the past was better, it wasn't, and B, it can be recaptured, 
it can't, that leads at best to bad art, movie versions of old TV shows, and sad dads watching Fox News. And since I don't have John Hodgman here himself, and I am using one of his quotes, allow me to promote his upcoming book, or actually it just came out this week, uh, Medallion Status, True Stories from Secret Rooms, which comes out this week and be found over at bit.ly slash medallion status. And I wanted to talk about nostalgia because the movies of the 80s tend to be very captured in nostalgia for someone of my age. My generation has a bunch of movies from the 80s that we love. I talked a little bit about it last week when I talked about the action films of Arnold Schwarzenegger. They aren't brilliant films, but they hold a nostalgic value for us, and we do continue to return to those. I know that I have recently been exposing my son to movies from my childhood, not because they're necessarily the best movies, but because they're movies that I loved, that helped inform the person that I would become. And he's been a little resistant to that. And I first, I couldn't understand it. I mean, these are great movies. Why wouldn't he want to see these? Why won't he give them a chance? And then I realized that part of the problem is that I'm nostalgic for these movies. So while I'm showing him things like Goonies and The Dark Crystal, which I thought were absolutely brilliant when I was his age, and frankly I still think are quite brilliant now, I can understand why he wouldn't have the same passion about them that I do, because he doesn't have that nostalgic factor. So when this week's movie was brought up, Willow, from 1988, it definitely was an exciting title for me, because I remember absolutely loving this film. But the truth is, that nostalgic, toxic impulse can be part of it. So does the movie hold up as well as we remember it? And that's one of the things that I discussed with my guest this week, Monica Siegfried. Now, Monica and I go way back. We originally met in 2008, if you would believe it. And I know that because we've been long-term friends through World of Warcraft. And I played World of Warcraft when it first came out. And then I left to go back to college to get my degree and really focus on my studies. And I returned to the game around 2008 because that was right before Wrath of the Lich King came out. And Monica and I ended up in the same guild, which she eventually took leadership of. Over the last, oh my god, 11 years, we've been in three different guilds together. We've gone through multiple raids together. She has been a friend, a confidant, and just an awesome not only guild leader and raid leader, but an awesome friend and someone whose opinion I really value. And when I asked her to be a part of this show, my original thought was of a book that she recommended that I read six or seven years ago called Hyperion by Dan Simmons. It was a science fiction novel I hadn't heard of, and she turned me on to it. And it's phenomenal if you haven't read it and you have a love of science fiction, and especially if you have a love of classic literature, because it does emulate Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. It's a fantastic novel. And Monica turned me on to that, and I was really appreciative of that. So I thought, great, what movie is she going to bring to the table? What are we going to uh, discuss? What, what new th insights am I going to get? And she brought Willow to the table. And initially, I have to admit, I was a little disappointed in that pick just because I was hoping for something shiny and new. And I was a little concerned because I was worried about that toxic impulse of nostalgia. But honestly, our conversation about Willow is probably one of the favorite interviews that I've done for this show so far. So I hope you like it. Here we go. Let's take a look at 1988's Willow. Did you ever play EverQuest or did you, you just got into WoW as MMORPGs, right? I think we started EverQuest, but I don't think 
it ever actually kind of held us there. So there were a lot of MMOs that, um, MMORPG in particular, that, that we attempted, but for whatever reason, the UI, the character development um, just, just couldn't do. The halflings in EverQuest are a lot more reminiscent of Willow than the gnomes in Warcraft. Mm-hmm. Because the gnomes are all about, you know, being tinkers and the mechanical and all that kind of stuff. And right. so when you revisit Willow and you see something that's a lot more like hobbits or or that kind of thing, it just it reminded me of EverQuest for some reason. The halflings in Willow reminded me more of the hobbits in the original animated The Hobbit. You know, long before The Lord of the Rings came out as the actual movie, the original animated Hobbit you know, was kind of where I started in terms of like fantasy genre. I mean, I started with books, of course, but I think that's, I saw them kind of like that, that, that Hobbit it, um, reminded me of that. So. Yeah. I grew up with that animated Hobbit. So yeah. I totally, totally get what you're saying. And I loved that. I loved, I, we were talking earlier about the fact that I don't, I'm not particularly fond of um, animated movies that are, not made for children that are made for adults. I'm not really an animated movie kind of person, but I absolutely loved the the Hobbit, the animated Hobbit in ways that I didn't really like the Lord of the Rings. And I couldn't even actually like finish all the Lord of the Rings movies, which is, I'm sorry. Um, you, you have not seen all of the Lord of the Rings movies? I haven't seen like the entirety of all of the movies. Let me put it in that way. So, so you've seen them in chunks? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If they're long movies, I can forgive that. But it, if you told me you hadn't seen them completely, it would be like, uh. No, no, no. I like we would start and I would get seriously bored. And I remember even like falling asleep during one point after just being totally disgusted with the, the silliness of the, the story and the filming. So it didn't feel genuine to me. So I'm sorry. I that really like hurts my nerd cred. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. I did not know that about you. Mm-hmm. Uh, see, I'm a huge fan of the the trilogy, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you mm-hmm. know, Fellowship, Two Towers. Mm-hmm. I'm not as big a fan of what Jackson did with the trilogy of Hobbit movies. Right. Those are the ones that I had the most problem with, too. Because, they, it, you know, it's one book and they stretched it out too much and they added too much other stuff in. And I just, it's it's not that I don't like them. I mean, I enjoyed watching them, mm-hmm. but I haven't gone back and revisited them the way that I have the Lord of the Rings trilogy. No. The, the funny thing is, is that I think we actually own all of them. I just haven't actually seen them. It's <laughs> <laughs> terrible. That's hilarious. Because I'll, I'll, you know, usually around Christmas time, I'll put, uh, I'll, I'll like binge the trilogy, uh, mm-hmm. the extended editions, and I'll just mm-hmm. put them in and just one at a time watch those. But, uh, but I, again, I haven't revisited The Hobbit other than seeing them in the theaters. I don't think I've really watched them at all. Mm-mm. It's funny. It's very funny. Yeah. It's also funny too, because I, you know, the things that I don't like about what they did with those movies is some of the things that really endeared me to Willow in particular. I don't think Willow took itself too seriously, which I loved. I mean, that's kind of one of the, the charming bits about that movie, right? Is that it doesn't take itself seriously at all, really. I mean, it kind of does a little bit. Well, yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about Willow. Okay. So uh, 1988. Okay. Willow, directed by Ron Howard, written by George Lucas, the story, and Bob Dolman, starring Val Kilmer, Joanna Wally, Warwick Davis, Gene Marsh, Patricia Hayes, Billy Barty, 
From the creator of Star Wars. From the director of Cocoon. A world is awakening. Why, with the strength of my great army, can you not find one little child? It's a dangerous world. That's why we need your help. Your journey has just begun. Willow. Heroes come in all sizes. But adventure doesn't come any bigger than this. Find the child. Find the child. We are not afraid of you. After them! You're gonna get us killed. Adjust them completely. The next great adventure. You are great. Willow. Coming in May. So, I have not seen this movie. How do you sell me on it? How do you get me to watch it? Oh, it's, um, to me, cult classic fantasy movie. If you enjoy that feel-good fantasy, kind of the the hero's journey. Um, there's fun sets and great costumes and exciting story and, you know, Val Kilmer totally doing his nerd macho thing. And it's, I don't know, it's just brilliant fun from the 80s, you know? So right. um, <laughs> those were those were the things that, um, that I'm really attached to about that movie. Uh, since you brought up from the 80s, do you think this movie has the potential for an audience today, or do you think it's going to be more that nostalgia factor for people who grew up with it? I think that's a good question, actually. I think that I could entice individuals. To, I think I could entice people to see it. Absolutely. Um, I certainly did even on Facebook when I posted about it, but I think that it's probably more of a draw for the, for of the nostalgia bit of it. So, but so are like all of the movies from that, that the fantasy movies from that genre, right. Or from that, from that time period. So. Yeah. And actually they had trouble getting um, funding for this movie in the first place, because so many of the fantasy movies from that era were disasters box office wise. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I know I love some of them and we'll actually bring up a couple of them a little later in the show, but Mm -hmm. I, I do wonder how much of that is nostalgia factor versus how much of that is something that is is still going to be accessible to contemporary audiences. Like I've I've taken to showing my son some of the the classics, if you will, from my childhood. So we watched The Dark Crystal, mm-hmm. which he got into. We watched The Goonies, which he got into. Right. But I didn't have him around when I watched this, and the more I watched it, I wasn't sure that he'd actually enjoy it. Really? Because Rowan loved it. She was, you know, I posted that um, a couple of years ago, right? And so, you know, she was 15 or 16 when she first saw it. And that was me totally, that was my post, right? That was, I was totally failing as a nerd mom. I, I completely failed my child, but she loved it. She loved the movie and I think we've seen it. I think, I think she's repeat watched it. So. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. So, so all of the movies that exist, why is this the one that you picked for the show? 
two reasons. First of all, I mean, I just am really um, compelled by the fun, feel-good fantasy. Um, I don't think maybe, well, actually, because I posted that on Facebook and I had so many people say, well, I've never seen this. I don't know what you're talking about. So I'm just like your daughter. And I was really surprised. And so I thought, I don't know, that kind of fit in your in your theme. Right. And it, and it was such a favorite. But then the other one is that it just, I, I just have still so much current attachment to it. In World of Warcraft, I play a character named after the baby in this movie. So My girlfriend asked if that's where you got your name. And I said, no, she's Alora. And this is Elora. It is. It absolutely is. When I first created the character, there was an Elora taken. So I swapped the first letter and there we go. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yes. Well, then she was right. I had no idea. Yeah, it's totally. And, you know, the thing is about the baby is that she's so cute. I mean, it's just the the way that they were able to get the expressions from her was just adorable. I mean, the baby is adorable and an important part of the story. But for me, like the the main thing about that baby is that she's able to um, compel people to be the best versions of themselves so that she can get done what she needs to get done, which kind of like into the role play of my character in world of warcraft so <laughs> gotcha yeah i actually have in my notes about how um some of the baby reaction shots they got are just so phenomenal I that said, they're they're just great reaction shots when they take them it's amazing i've had three children i don't think i could i don't think i ever could have like gotten those the eyebrows you know <laughs> a little quirk of the mouth she's adorable <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the movie is, um, I, I jokingly posted about watching it, that it is a halfling sent on an epic quest to try and save the world. And that, you know, sounds very familiar with what we were talking about as far as The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings or that kind of stuff. Right. And in fact, the in the, the critical reviews of it, it, it got a lot of flack for that. It's only at 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. Right. And it's a 79% audience score. So the audience obviously loves it a lot more than the critics. It's at 47% at Metacritic. Mm. And to pull in a couple of critical quotes here, just to kind of guide our discussion. Gene Siskel said, Willow certainly isn't fresh. It's a rehash of elements from previous Lucas films, as well as everything from The Wizard of Oz to Gulliver's Travels. The film is too violent for small children and too babyish for teenagers. His colleague, Roger Ebert, said, All of the special effects are competent, but they do not breathe with the fire of life because they are not motivated by a strong story we really care about. The characters in Willow are shallow and unexciting, and the story is a plod through recycled legend. Therefore, even the battle with the dragon is a foregone conclusion. There can be no true suspense in a movie where even the characters seem to be inspired by other movies. And then to try and find a more positive review, I had to turn to Real.com and Betsy Bosdick said, Willow is crammed with battles, sweeping scenery, and special effects, which, although they're showing their age now, were pretty impressive for 1988, with a healthy dose of humor and romance thrown in for good measure. It's a mix that's fairly standard in fantasy films because it works. There's nothing like a wise guy hero, a perilous quest, some dazzling swordplay, and a stolen kiss or two to engage an audience looking for an escape. Sure, Willow has its faults. The plot isn't all that hard to figure out in advance, and some of the dialogue sounds more like it comes from an episode of Friends than a sword and sorcery epic. But when push comes to shove, it's still an imaginative adventure. 
I think that review hits it exactly on the head. That's exactly what this movie is. It doesn't have to be, you know, some surprise storytelling. It doesn't, you know, it's okay that it's it's all the audience is able to figure it out. You know, it just feels good. It has that great sense of humor. It is this, you know, adventure, you know, this master swordsman and he is funny and charming and and adorable and the fairies and magic and yeah no i think i think that absolutely gets why it is such a great film to see to encourage people to see and to to own and see again well and i i didn't look at those quotes until after i had finished my rewatch of it and i i will say i wrote down a lot of, well, this is from this, this references this, this is very reminiscent of this, which we'll talk about as we go through. But when I read the reviews, my first thought was, it's from a story by George Lucas. Right. George Lucas built Star Wars on the foundation of Joseph Conrad's hero's journey. Right. He outright borrowed bits from Kurosawa's Hidden Fortress and other stories. Why would you be surprised that he builds this fantasy world very similarly on basic archetypal narratives? Yeah, no, I mean I don't I don't think that it really needed to be different. I think that it's but actually can I can I segue a little bit there? Because I think Absolutely. He, he also I I know that I read somewhere at some point that um that he built this movie for made this movie for Warwick, right? He originally wrote it in 1972 mm-hmm. and then knew that filmmaking wasn't where it needed to be in order to make this. So he, he put it on a shelf. And then after he met Warwick Davis, who was famously Wicket the Ewok in Return of the Jedi, mm-hmm. he pulled the idea back out and wrote it with him in mind to play the title role of Willow Ufgood. Okay. Yeah, I thought that this was really centered around Warwick. And, and you know, I think that... At that time, at the time that it was done, that was like a really novel idea. I mean, I get that, you know, nowadays we look back and say, okay, well, we could compare it to this and we could compare it to that. But at the time, it, it wasn't. It wasn't, you know, there weren't all these other wonderful examples. There were some from the genre, which, you know, you mentioned that we'll talk about later. And like you said, they aren't necessarily, they didn't necessarily do that great. I don't know. I think that it kind of was everything that it needed to be at the time period. And the special effects I thought were actually pretty cool at that time. The the dragon thing was a little bit cheesy, but again, I don't think it took itself too seriously. At the time. Yes. I mean, they definitely do not age well. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the, the composite shots, especially with the brownies Mm -hmm. are not very good now, you know, having just rewatched it a couple of days ago, they're, they're, they're they're just not very good now, but Mm -hmm. at the time, yeah, they were absolutely stunning. Mm -hmm. And the, the one thing I noted is, you know, keep in mind, Fellowship of the Ring doesn't come out until 2001. Right. So for 13 years, this is kind of our go-to movie in that genre, in that area. Right. Right. And it still has all the same themes about, especially the idea of a a small person being able to make a difference in the world, which, Mm -hmm. you know, Gandalf has that great speech in in Lord of the Rings about that. And that's prevalent here in Willow. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, yeah, I, that was kind of that part of the, the, that, Laura Dannon being able to compel Willow to be the best version of himself, which I thought was pretty cool. And it did, you know, kind of transcend this size. Although, you know, he's from a whole village from he's from a whole race of these people who are the same size as him. So that he had his other challenges, his own challenges within his community anyways. But yeah, it was, uh, I don't know, it was a lot of fun. 
I love that that village scene just as a you know as someone who grew up on the Star Wars movies right. and saw a lot of the behind the scenes how they did this and then going on to other movies like you know Time Bandits and stuff mm-hmm. any little person that you've ever seen in a movie is in that village scene somewhere Right. Kenny Baker is playing the drums and Tony Cox is in the background as one of the guards. Of course, he then comes to the foreground Mm -hmm. as well. You know, almost all the cast of Time Bandits. And of course, that that culminates in Billy Barty playing the wise wizard. Right. Right. Yeah. No, it was uh, it was fun. It was fun to watch that scene. (laughs) So let me ask you, you brought up the fact that, you know, he he brings this back off the shelf and and writes it with Mm -hmm. Warwick Davis in mind. Mm-hmm. Warwick Davis doesn't get top billing on the movie. He's actually third. Right. True. And it's funny because I don't know, I don't think I ever knew Joanne Wally at all. I didn't. Well, she married Val Kilmer after this. Right. And then her biggest credit that I would say, other than Willow, is she played Scarlett O'Hara in the made for TV miniseries that was kind of the sequel to Gone with the Wind. Okay. So yeah, I wouldn't have known that at all in the eighties. I wouldn't have paid any attention to that. Um, <laughs> but, but Val Kilmer, on the other hand, you know, is he is he the one who got top billing? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So and this is kind of his breakout, right? Really, was it? Didn't I remember Real Genius before that? I thought I'm trying to remember. I, I mean, this really is what made him more of a household name because Real Genius, if I remember correctly, wasn't incredibly popular when it came out. Probably. We watched it so much that summer, that first summer that it came out. I can't even. It's one of those first movies that really kind of made its killing, you know, once it came out on, on DVD. Right. He did. Yes. Real Genius was before this and Top Gun was before this. So that was what made him a household name was Top Gun, really. I mean, you know, because the volleyball scene and whatever. I won't get too distracted with that. But, um, so, um, and we've lost her. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Yes. Uh, we'll come back. But actually, it was like some of it's some of that that really that he brought to this character, which is probably what I know. The other thing that I had read was that who John Cusack was auditioned for this role. Yes. And I can't even imagine John Cusack in this. And I love I love him. I love John Cusack. And I. For the most part, I see him just as this, you know, a nerdy, emotional, good guy kind of kind of character in general. Care- careful what you say, because I always consider him kind of my on-screen avatar. Do you? <laughs> yes, I, I connect so well with him in the movies that he's in. And he's fantastic. I love him so much. I think that he, like the the one time that I that I remember him really like kind of breaking that role was um, even though he really stuck to it was gross point blank, which is one of my favorite all time movies. I love him so much. So he does still have that kind of nerdy machismo kind of thing going on that, you know, he can do it. He can fight, but Val Kilmer brought something else to this role that John Cusack would not have. Well, and he's a really, you know, for all the criticism in those reviews of this being kind of cookie cutter, he's really a pretty well-rounded character. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we first meet him in the cage mm-hmm. and begging for his life, but at the same time, you know, belittling mm-hmm. these people, you know, and I had never caught until this viewing the difference between Nelwyn and Peck, or yeah, we'll just right. call it the P word because right. apparently that's, you know, right. You weren't <laughs> supposed to say that. <laughs> he says it over and over and over again. <laughs> I had I just thought that's what they were. I didn't realize that their their race is actually Nelwyn. Mm-hmm. And then you have him undergo, you know, this adventure where he is kind of an ass. Mm-hmm. 
talk too much. He's a little self-centered. We'll say he's self-centered and really focused on his, you know, base instincts. <laughs> yes. Base instincts. That's a good way of putting it. But when push comes to shove at the end, mm-hmm. his statement is, I stand with the Nell one. When he earlier, he wasn't going to stand by his friend, Eric. Mm-hmm. He wasn't. And Eric actually, you know, gets on his case for not really being able to pick a side. Right. And being a mercenary. And and he even, you know, makes a statement uh, early on when he t- offers to protect Alora. He says, I give you my word of honor that I'll protect her. And not five minutes after he disappears, the baby's gone from him. Right. But when he makes that proclamation of I stand with the Nelwyn, you realize this character does have honor and he has chosen where his battle is going to be. Right. Right. Because ultimately there was never really kind of that mercenary attitude. It was, I mean, there is, it was more like, like it's not that he's out for whoever will pay the best. It's more like he doesn't really need to fight necessarily. It doesn't have to be his battle except that Alora then compels him to be the best version of himself. So, so that's a really interesting because you've said that a couple of times. It's a really interesting interpretation because I had not thought about that, that she is compelling these people to be the best version of themselves. And she first does it in the river, right? She, when, when, the, when Mims and, and Rannon find her and Willow comes over to see them, you know, she, she first starts to, I mean, although he does his thing, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't, doesn't give in at that point. And it really isn't actually until later when they determine that, that he needs to make this journey to, to take the baby back to her people that he admits his feelings. But yeah, I don't, I think that, that she does with her little coos and her, her crazy eyebrows. It's, it's a, uh, it's pretty cool. So she's magic, right? Shalindria said that. Well, and that's, and that's the question. I mean, when he's, asked, you know, when, when they're trying to determine who's going to take this baby away from the Nelwyn village, they ask him, you know, do you have any love for this child? Mm-hmm. And he doesn't have to say a word. Mm-hmm. And you can you can see it in his face that even in the brief time that they've been together, yeah, he does. Mm-hmm. And he's going to he's going to be the best protector for her because of that. Yes. I love that moment, by the way. I love that, you know, when he's when he's talking to the High Aldwin and the or the High Aldwin's rolling the bones and and you know and they're having their little side chat there i loved that whole uh sleight of hand thing that he does you know <laughs> uh we go from you know the bones say nothing to uh, <laughs> the bones have spoken so which i i love a lot of this story is about you you know doing those things making those decisions the actions that you take and that's the i guess the classic hero's journey yeah it this does follow that Not closely, but yeah, I mean, it still kind of follows that path of the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. And as a typical hero, he, you know, he encounters various people along the way. We've already talked about, you know, Val Kilmer as Mad Mardigan. You have Migosh is one of the other Nelwyn who accompanies him, who is just like immediately, that's Samwise. That's Samwise Gamgee right there. Yeah. You know, (laughs) he's, he's very humble. And true. Yes. Yeah. You have the, the brownies. Mm-hmm. Louis and Frenchie, right? Yes. Who uh, I'm a, not as interested in as before. Bef- they they have one of my absolute favorite lines of dialogue. Something that I am uh, I'm happy to quote at, at people given the right circumstance. And the problem is not enough people have seen this movie, and the right circumstance doesn't come up often enough. But they have that. You are drunk. 
And when you are drunk, you forget that I you am in charge. in charge. Fine. Then which way do we go? That way. <laughs> <laughs> they're hilarious, and but they're from something else, right? Who are well? Kevin Pollock is and continues to be a huge comedian and then rick overton is as well and there's there's a bit of trivia with uh, this that that pollock and overton went and did some improv as they were filming it mm-hmm. and an audience member got up on stage along with them uh-huh and it was robin williams oh <laughs> and pollock got to the point where he just backed off and just watched because it gave him a chance to see robin williams in person wow <laughs> oh my gosh that would be a life-changing experience huh yeah. Yeah. That there, I, you know, the brownies are, again, that kind of bit of, you've got the magical elements, they've got some really hilarious lines, but they don't, this is like one of those things that, that to me, you know, shows you that the movie doesn't take itself too seriously. Like you can suspend disbelief and you can just kind of go along for the fun of it. You know, the fact that he's the love dust powders him and then he's, he's got his little rat hat on and and then he falls in love with the cat, you know? So, (laughs) I mean, all these little bits of it, you know, that just kind of add to the humor and, and, and just make it kind of this, this fun, silly adventure that you're going on in this movie. Yeah. And like, that's one of the things I thought the movie did really well. You do have several instances of Chekhov's gun in this movie, but like the, the dust of broken heart is what they call it. And they actually lay the foundation for it earlier in the movie without really selling, hey, this is going to come back into play later on. Right. With him, you know, accidentally hitting himself and being smitten by the cat. Right. And when it, so when it comes back later on, it feels very genuine to the story. Right. It definitely does. Although I did write down, he has his, his bit after he gets hit with the dust of broken heart and he's talking to uh, Sorsha. Mm-hmm. And he says, my sun, my moon, my starlit sky. And that is very close to a quote from Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream right. about how you are my love, my whole, my soul, dear Helena. Uh-huh. <laughs> but didn't he, didn't, didn't he, Balcomer have a lot of leeway to like ad lib a lot of stuff? Like he didn't, didn't he uh, not have, like he didn't, he made up a lot of stuff. That's what I've read. I, I still, you know, I've I've heard actors more recently say, and and writers especially more recently say, one of their most frustrating questions they get on press junkets is, "Were you allowed to improv, or how much improv is in this?" Mm-hmm. And so I, I personally try to stick to the idea that what is on screen is what the writer wrote. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. but the the word is that yes, uh, that that Val Kilmer had a lot of leeway as far as improvisation goes. So yeah, a Shakespeare thing in there would make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, it did. It was fun, and kind of going with that scene. It was I loved that that shift of you know him hating her and then him loving her, and that was so important to the to the movie. And then kind of that development of the the further development of their relationship you know, actually just it giving her pause to take another look at him to, to really see him for who he is rather than just the side that she's on because of her mother. Yeah. And there's actually a cut scene that I wish they had actually put in the movie in that regard, because the way it plays out right now, and we'll talk more about the bad guys here in a minute, but the way it plays out right now, Sorsha is watching Mad Mardigan as he is, you know, fighting off the enemy horde, which Mm -hmm. she's a part of. And she just kind of 
becomes smitten by him. And it, the way it plays out, it's like, oh, he's into me and he's a really awesome swordsman and kind of cute. So I'll be <laughs> into him. <laughs> and there's a cut scene where they're at Tira's lean mm-hmm. and you know, you see the people encased in stone and apparently her father was the ruler of Tiraslene, mm-hmm. and he is one of the people encased in stone. And there was a cut scene where he was communicating with her through the stone and his pleas are what convinced her to change sides, mm. which plays a lot better to me than suddenly being smitten by the swordsman on the other side. And so you change sides. So that's interesting. I did not know that. I haven't seen it. Um, Oh, I haven't seen it either. I've just read about it. Yeah, it's in it's in the comic book adaptation, and it's in the novelization apparently. Okay, but it never made it to screen. See, that would have changed, I think, for for me a little bit because I thought that part of so yes, I kind of got the you know whole uh, superficial. Oh, he's kind of hot there with that sword, and look at him go, and he said all these you know really sexy things to me and you know and look at him play volleyball on the beach right exactly um (laughs) anyways yeah but then but i thought actually i before you said this i've always thought that part of it was that he is doing this in defense of the no one which made her which which is the other reason why you know in defense of the the no one but uh, and the baby he's you know so it 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 was more than just kind of the the superficial stuff that made her take a second look. It was also, that's how I had always looked at it. But again, I didn't know that there was this other aspect of the story. Well, I can get that. So, so you're saying you think it's more about his motivation than Mm -hmm. just, he's a good looking guy with a really fast sword. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I, that's how I had, kind of taken it again you have to like make that jump it's not just handed to you really you know you have to be willing to kind of see into the into the story in that way so but i was willing to with this movie it's just fun it feels good well sorsha is of course the daughter of our big bad here bav morda mm-hmm. which is that's that kind of the the leading the whole aspect of the story is that there's a prophecy that elora is the child who will end or who will bring about the end of bav morda mm-hmm. And so when she discovers this child, she sends her her general, General Kale, mm-hmm. and her daughter, Sorsha, to go find this baby. Right. General Kale is probably the biggest source of nightmare fuel for me with that scary skull mask. Wasn't it magnificent? And he's so tall. Yeah. This is a massive character, and he's incredible incredibly costumed and very committed to and you know the beard and the like his voice everything about him i didn't realize until this viewing though how often he has that awesome helmet up yeah which takes away from him a little bit oh you know that he has this awesome presence with the skull but then half of the movie he's not wearing it Mm, that's i guess that's kind of true i don't know i still i got that the skull was yeah, it was very cool, but I everything about him to me said scary bad guy. Oh yeah. He was phenomenal. Yeah, he's as I said, he's kind of the nightmare fuel. And um you almost wonder why does she need to send Sorsha for any of this? You've got him. Mm-hmm. To prove the point, right? To prove her although she never questioned it. No. No, she never questioned it. So I guess there is that little bit of what's the point of Sorsha when she's got Kale? <laughs> 
there is that is that is a question i guess well and that's you know there's a, a line later on in the movie where she sees kale and says you know kale have you found the child and my thought was well where was he when sorsha found the child because sorsha is the one who found it right and maybe it's just that they're you know they, they can't all go the same direction so they they need to split up and try to find it so maybe that was it maybe that's why Beth Morda's an interesting villain, though. She she's almost Disney esque. Yes. So yeah, like witch with the apple kind of ish. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, I she reminds me, you know, kind of a combination of yeah, the the evil queen there, mm-hmm. the original Maleficent. She's she's just evil. Mm-hmm. Like where you have Mar- Mad Mardigan, who's kind of a well rounded figure, and you have Sorsha, who especially if you bring in the scene with her father, mm-hmm. is a well rounded figure. Bav Morda is just there's no redeeming qualities to her Mm-mm, not a single one which was what made her so convincing as a bad guy that's why uh, you know why it was so important that this that the that the end goal be accomplished right she was she was very convincing in her role <laughs> yeah um i didn't like the trolls you didn't like the trolls yeah the trolls that they encounter in tirasling mm-hmm. they're hairy kind of monkey-esque those don't remind me of any trolls i've ever seen in any Mm-mm. aspect of of fantasy no and and they had some kind of some little bits of funny intelligence about them like they had weird reactions to things i agree they didn't it was a minor thing for me that i didn't i wasn't keen on but then the the dual-headed dragon thing wasn't i wasn't hot on that one either <laughs> oh see i love that <laughs> it was- it was um it, the fire was fun it looked funny <laughs> and um so yeah i kind of had a hard time getting over that it was so cheesy it just again one of those bits where you know the special effects haven't gone gotten that far yet and it had that um very i don't know that lord of the rings moment where where they where he jumps on the back of the beast and he's like flopping around on the beast um mm-hmm. it just i it very fake very silly that that's one moment of the movie that really like pulls me out really interesting mm-hmm. see i like it and i like the fact that they they can't seem to defeat it they can't seem to defeat it and then its head blows up because mad mardigan had managed to get his sword through it it didn't kill it but it pinned his mouth shut right <laughs> And I love that, that that's, they did manage to get it down. It just wasn't uh, very ideal. It's true. It's true. <laughs> but um, yeah, going back to the trolls. Yeah, they were, it was one, I was glad they had such a small, a small little portion of the movie. <laughs> and, and then while we're talking bad guys, just to kind of throw in, he's not necessarily a bad guy, but Burgle Cup, mm-hmm. kind of the antagonist of the Nelwyn from the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, it again. It was one of those reminiscent type things that reminded me of, and it's not really done in the movies, but in the books, the relationship between the Baggins and the Sackville Baggins is that there's a lot of animosity there. Right. And you know, when Burglecup appears at the farm and is like chiding Willow for not, mm-hmm. you know, you're not going to get your crops done. Mm-hmm. That that felt very much like that was taken from you know those books. That that attitude. Right. Definitely. And he was also, you know, in the, he also provided a little bit of comedic relief as a result of, you know, we've we got to do something with this, with this quote unquote bad guy with this, with this, you know, tax man or whatever, whatever his role was. I don't remember. You know, he was, yeah, it did kind of take from some of those, those previous stories, but 
it's also fitting like it fits into so many other stories as well you've always got kind of that character oh yeah oh yeah so let's talk for a minute about finn rizel the wizard who is you know in animal form for most of the movie Mm -hmm. starts as an australian possum Mm -hmm. (laughs) your cute little voice it was hilarious (laughs) yeah it's it's interesting because you know all the analysis that I'm looking at with those critical reviews are like, well, this character is this character, you know, Mad Morgan is the Han Solo character, and Willow is the Luke Skywalker character, and Finn Rizel is kind of the Obi Wan connection slash Yoda character, and I'm like, yeah, Obi Wan wasn't an animal. Like, it's almost hard to sort her in that same category because while she is leading Willow, she's very limited in what she can do. So. Yes. Um, and it was more like she was there to display or demonstrate Willow's, we're going to call it leveling up. <laughs> <laughs> his, his wizardry. Okay. <laughs> so he has, um, right. He has in the beginning, he can't do much of anything. It's all sleight of hand. And then he's, you know, given a little information and a few tools, the acorns and the the wands, and told to believe in himself. And so then he has to do these things and he tries, he practices and learns, and then he casts his spell and it's a level one spell and it fails utterly. And, um, you know, it kind of just keeps going on, right? And then he finally, you know, does finally level up as as a wizard. <laughs> That's just, you know... That's an interesting perspective. <laughs> yeah. So I felt like that's she was really there to to demonstrate that, and then of course because no one else is going to beat the true evil that that is Bad Morta. They made her too convincing. There had to be outside help. So what do you mean? Uh, well, they you know they the first thing she does well not the first thing she does but definitely you see that moment where Bad Morta turns the whole entire army into pigs. Which is very reminiscent of the Odyssey, by the way. Right, right. So, but they're not going to beat that. I mean, you know, she transforms them. And and the only reason that Willow wasn't included in that and the story didn't end where it did, or end at that moment, is because Finn Rizal was there and said, you know, do this and told Willow what to do to cover his ears or whatever and, and hide so that they were not affected by the spell, but there had to be someone to match power with Bev Morta. So Finn Rizal is that, is that she had to, she had to be in there to do that because no one else really had the power to do that. She's too powerful. Which, which is interesting if you think about the conclusion of the film, because you, so you have Finn Rizal finally in human form. Mm-hmm. As you say, she's kind of there to counter Bev Morta. Mm-hmm. You have the acorns that he was given at the beginning, which you just know are going to be the Chekhov's gun here. You know that they're going to come into play. Right. And yet the ending almost tricks you by bringing his sleight of hand into play instead of either of those elements. It's his sleight of hand that ends up being what is, you know, wins the day. You're right. His cleverness. It is ultimately what won the day. Yeah. And I... I love that, that it's because you, it, it really subverts expectations because you do expect, oh, well, now Finn Rizal is going to kick butt or, oh, you're going to bring that acorn in and turn her to stone. And instead, it is this kind of combination of his sleight of hand and her own hubris that leads to her demise. Yeah. The, ultimately, it is Bav Morta that, that kills herself, right? It is. Right. Because yeah. it, if she had just chosen to kill mm-hmm. Alora Danan, then 
it would be over with, but no, she, she's like, no, I'm going to send her soul into the nether realm. Right. Like yeah. it's not just enough to kill her. Mm-hmm. And apparently the books elaborate on that, that, that her theory was if I kill her, her soul will be reborn into someone else and then they will be a threat. And apparently the books like confirm that that's what would have happened. Which makes sense given what we, yeah, I would have anticipated that as well. So she says, you know, okay, well I'm going to get rid of its soul. Mm-hmm. And when she, the sleight of hand occurs and she can't, comprehend what just happened she walks into her own trap right exactly yes but he would not have been able to i guess my point going taking it back to the other point that finrazel was necessary with her specific power he would not have things would not have transpired in the way that they did if it were not for for finrazel being powerful enough to actually fight bevmorda so i think that she was integral kind of in those in both she was there to to help willow level up and become his true self or develop into his magic. And then also to, to be there to, to fight, to help win the day because they wouldn't have done it on their own. Right. But isn't that the way with, with the good always, like we're always fighting as a team and you know, the, the evil is, is always fighting alone. I don't feel like any of the world of Warcraft expansions have had evil fighting on its own. <laughs> and we always fight a single end boss. <laughs> <laughs> so Lannis just, you know, made that point for us. So. Yeah, that's that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk about the prophecy. Okay. Because the, the, the more I think about it, the prophecy is kind of this – there's a fallacy to the, to the prophecy. Okay. It, it kind of uh, – because the prophecy is that this child will, will bring about the end of Bavmorda. Mm-hmm. And it's because she sets that trap, right? She, she is going to suck away the child's soul. Mm-hmm that she is ended. She isn't destroyed by the child. Mm -mm. She's destroyed by her own response to the idea of the child. Mm, That's true. So it's one of those, if the prophecy hadn't existed, I I don't know. It's, it's a causal loop, if you will. It's almost time travel, right? If the prophecy didn't exist, then she wouldn't have done what she did. But because it exists, she does that. And she ends up bringing about her own downfall. Hmm, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought that much into that prophecy, but it is it is interesting to consider that huh. I remember reading <laughs> a line um or seeing something recently maybe about fate and it would it would have to do with it would go along lines of prophecy and about being able to change it because you know it. Um you're not changing fate necessarily just how just your response to fate and that does in the end change fate so maybe that's that's interesting i hadn't Mm -hmm. thought that much about the the prophecy aspect of it i always felt like that was a little it was a little bit weak like it's there to set the tone um, Mm -hmm. but you don't have enough backstory really into why you know things are so awful and other than maybe constant war and the people are oppressed, except for all these little no ones are pretty happy in their village. Like they're having this great party. True. You know, they're, they're pretty much isolated and left alone and the brownies and, you know, in their forests and, and the villagers and where, you know, the different places that they visit are weird humans in the way that they are. So I don't know. I think that, that's interesting. Where are you going with that? I just, it struck me. I, I don't know. It, I mean, essentially Elora serves no purpose in the, in the movie. Other than, I mean, she's the MacGuffin. She's what everybody's after. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't even, I mean, they could have said, you know, a turnip will bring about Bavmorda's downfall, and it would have been the same thing. It could, but in a, a 
up would compel people to be the best version of themselves. I really <laughs> honestly think that that was her role. She's, you know, whether or not she has power in the future, it's the it's her ability to get people to act in her in her stead, in her um, you know, for her towards her goal, which is goodness. And that's what Shalindria says, right? You know, it's it's her it's her ability that's her magic is that ability to compel people. So I'm a little surprised you haven't brought up this facet of things, but this is a very girl power type story. Probably because at the time in the eighties didn't matter to me like that, that, that would not have been my focus at all. I really saw, um, you know, it was just, I was very smitten with Mad Mardigan. I love, of course, <laughs> I loved Willow and the baby is just cute. So, you know, it's adventure and, and silly quips and fun little brownies and lots of, lots of funny lines. But if you think about it, so the baby is a girl. Mm-hmm. When they go for the ultimate confrontation against Bav Morda, who is, you know, a queen, not a king. Mm-hmm. When they go to confront her, it is Willow supported by Finn mm-hmm. and Sorsha. So it is, other than Willow, it is women confronting women there about the rule of the kingdom. Yeah, definitely. I think that's, again, very, you know, 80s separate from the current uh, gender identity issues um, or gender role issues. But I, you know, that's, that's why it doesn't, for me, it doesn't stand out. It would maybe, you know, be more appealing to women in this day and age as a result. But at, at the time that I first saw it, it never really, it was natural to me that she was a queen and she was being fought by women. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know, this is just posing a, a question, uh, more of a rhetorical question, but with the prophecy having been fulfilled, is Alora special anymore? Is there anything special about her? The, the story has continued. There was a trilogy of books because they couldn't get continue doing the movies after this one performed pretty poorly. They were called The Chronicles of the Shadow War. Uh, they came out in 95, 96, and 2000, Shadow Moon, Shadow Dawn, and Shadow Star, which tell the future of what happens in this world after the movie. I have not read them yet. That's interesting. I have not read them either. I didn't know anything about it. Yeah, they're written by George Lucas and uh, Chris Claremont, who does, who's famous for his comic book work. Huh. That's interesting. I'll have to look for those. Well... Even more interesting, especially since you just picked this, is Ron Howard confirmed that he was working on a sequel in 2018, and then in May 2019 announced that instead of a sequel, they are doing a television series follow-up on Disney+. Plus. That's awesome. Which this movie, by the way, is part of the starting lineup of Disney+. Plus. It will be written by Jake Kasdan, who listeners of this podcast heard about a couple of episodes ago. He wa- he wrote Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. Right. Uh, and Warwick Davis will reprise his titular role. Awesome. That sounds fantastic. So whether contemporary audiences would be interested in the movie, there's going to be a TV show for them to... Yeah. <laughs> and it, that will actually... I, I think people will like that. I mean, there's you know still such a strong interest in the fantasy genre we're constantly seeing i mean things are more sci-fi and crime drama nowadays but we definitely still see some really strong tv shows that that are fantasy genre yeah have you gotten to watch uh dark crystal power of resistance yet i have not or age of resistance yet not yet not yet but it's definitely on the list it's so good is it (laughs) so good oh my goodness 
Yeah. All right. So uh, the algorithm says this is taking a look at other movies. The algorithms uh, suggest you might like because you liked this one. So this is kind of a lightning round. Quick thoughts on these movies that popped up, whether it's a, yeah, I love that movie or I haven't seen that or what the hell. Okay. All right. You ready? Ready. All right. Masters of the Universe. I uh, didn't see it. You didn't miss much. <laughs> yeah. Billy Barty's in it. Hmm. Which I guess is the main connection. Ah. The Shape of Water. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, Isn't it? I did see The Shape of Water. Huh. <laughs> odd. I did see it and I did like it. Uh, Disney's Sword in the Stone. Yes, of course. Yes, very much so. Ralph Bakshi's Wizards. I'm not familiar with that. Ooh, you need to look that one up. Okay, I'll uh, I'll try and remember to send you a trailer or something for that one. Sounds it's good. it it's 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 another one of those animated not for kids though, so maybe you wouldn't like it. Who knows? I don't know whether or not I would like these or not. I just don't choose them. Right, Legend. Of course, yes, very much so, Legend. <laughs> Which I'm not a fan of. <laughs> oh no, we haven't talked about that at all. We stayed very far away from those. I'm sorry. Go yes, <laughs> Lady Hawk. Yes, of course. Yep. Inner Space. That's interesting. I have seen that. Hmm. I wouldn't have made a connection there. I did like it. I mean, yeah. you know, I, it didn't have a lot of rewatchability for me, but yes. Probably my favorite of the 80s fantasy that really just didn't go as well as it should have. Mm-hmm. Crawl. Yeah, I want to say I probably saw that many, many years ago. Many moons ago. I, you know, fit the genre-ish, you know, especially with uh, Mad Mardigan and Kale, probably, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, I can see it. I love it. It's unfortunately it it can't figure out what it wants to be. It's like fantasy, but then let's have some sci-fi aspects in it, and then oh, let's dive back into fantasy. But yeah, yeah, yeah. that and Masters of the Universe is Masters of the Universe a lot like Kroll? to some degree, yes. Yeah, kind of the Conan the Barbarian thing. Yeah, yeah, we're shifting into that realm. Um, the Beastmaster. Um, yes, I can definitely see that as well, which I, and if I remember correctly, I actually liked the Beastmaster. Yeah, it, it's, um, kind of the same thing at the beginning. They're trying to find this child who is prophesied will bring about the end of the rule. So I can definitely see where the connection comes in. I like it, but it's definitely not very strong if you go back and revisit it now. No. Flash Gordon. I wouldn't see the connection. Of course, I loved it. Um, I've seen it many times, own it tell everyone about it i have friends who hadn't seen it before i have never seen it oh my god (laughs) oh my um okay i'm familiar with the music but i have not actually sat down and watched it sir i i am disappointed in you you will love it it's (laughs) so fantastic i could totally wax rhapsodic about that one too but All right, we always end with the pop quiz, which I suspect you're going to do pretty well on. (laughs) All right, you ready? Ready. Number one, according to the press kits and novels, the two-headed dragon has a formal name paying tribute to two individuals. What is it? A, Ernie Burt, paying tribute to the Muppet characters of Sesame Street. B, Lucas Berg, paying tribute to collaborators George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. C, Joni Chach paying tribute to Ron Howard's Happy Days Past, or D. Ebert Sisk paying tribute to film critics Ebert and Siskel. Oh God, I don't know this. I don't know. I would guess B. I don't know. 
I don't no, know. No, it is Ebert Sisk paying tribute to film critics Ebert and Siskel. That's funny. And General Kale is named after Pauline Kale. Oh. Who gave a notoriously negative review to Star Wars. That's funny. Yeah. So he has his little send up of the critics in here. <laughs> That's pretty hilarious. Especially because the dragon looks like I'm not gonna talk about it. You'll have to see it and see. <laughs> <laughs> uh number two, another eighties iconic actor tested for Mad Mar- Mar- Mad Mardigan but lost the role and considers it his greatest disappointment. Who was he? That that was John Cusack. Yeah, so I'm not even going to read the choices. (laughs) So one right. (laughs) So glad that he did not also. I really like Val Kilmer. It would have been a very different movie. It would have been. I agree. All right, three. George Lucas wrote the original idea for Willow in 1972, but shelved the idea until effects advanced enough to make the movie. What was Lucas's original title for the film? A, The Sorcerer's Apprentice. B, Munchkins. C, Mad Mardigan. Or D, The Adventures of Willow Offgood as Guided by the Prophecy of Alora Danan. It was Munchkins, I believe. It was Munchkins. Good. See, I told you you were going to do good on this. I read that somewhere. I just, I had to throw in that last one because, you know, the original title of Star Wars was The Adventures of Luke Starkiller as taken from the Journal of the Wills Saga 1, The Star Wars. Crazy. <laughs> so I had to throw in a, a throwaway to that. All right. Last question. Do you give black root to a baby? Gosh, I hope not. It's just vanilla. (laughs) (laughs) You never give black root to a baby. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she likes it. (laughs) Unless you're Mad Bardigan's mom, right? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) All right. Where can people find you? Do you have anything you want to promote? Anything like that? Um, Not a whole lot. I'm mostly in World of Warcraft. Come raid with us, right? Afraid with us. If you're if you're mythic geared and ready to step into it, then yes, <laughs> we're on we're on dollar end. <laughs> All right, Monica, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. I really had fun revisiting this one. Sounds good. Thank you, Ray. So, what do you think about Monica's theory that the baby is helping everyone become their best self? Is this movie plagued by the curse of nostalgia or actually still a great adventure? And does it really take away from the movie at all just because Lucas created another derivative story? Let me know what you think. You can find me at Talon Hess on Twitter or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter. On Facebook, we're at Have Not Seen This Podcast or email me at Have Not Seen This at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. The podcast is available on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or you can just use the RSS feed to subscribe through whatever podcatcher you prefer. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, although I'd appreciate it more if you just help spread the word and help me build up some listeners. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Monica for providing this week's conversation. Maybe you have a movie you'd like to talk about, one that means something to you, or you're just particularly astonished when you discover people have not seen. Come be a guest on the show. Head over to havenotseenthis.podbean.com, click the Be a Future Guest button, submit the form there, and we'll get you set up for a future episode. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This.